Um, if you, uh, hope, you've hopefully got a red Bible, if you can turn um, to page 1086, and do please keep those Bibles um, open throughout the service, that would be great. And Pete Thompson is going to come and read our first reading to us, beginning at John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kindron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Jesus, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I'm he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants had uh, and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who've heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. 
If I've said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I've spoken the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Well, if you're new to church today, I'm sure uh, you'll now have realized that we're arriving, you're arriving just um, at the darkest and most dramatic um, point in the story in the life of Jesus. Um, but as we go, I hope you're going to see that it's also the most amazing um, point in the story. Now, here's a question um, that is, is often asked, maybe, maybe you've asked it, maybe you've asked it even this week. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? This is one of the most common, Christi- uh, common questions Christians ever get asked. And it's a question that keeps resurfacing, whether it's recent events in Westminster or the latest terror attack in the Middle East or simply the randomness with which illness and tragedy seem to strike some and not others. It happens again and again and again. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, as all of us know, the worst answers to that question are the glib answers, the sound bites, the tweets. My stomach turned last year when I saw someone tweet, hashtag devastated when a much-loved celebrity died. Twitter-style communication is so inadequate when it comes to the deepest questions and experiences of human life. When it comes to the mysteries of suffering, the sound bites are often worse than saying nothing at all. But thankfully, the Bible's answer is nothing of the sort. If you've explored any of um, what it has to say um, so far in your life, you'll know that the answer has many layers. Part of the answer is silence. Silence. A significant part of the Bible's response to suffering is silence. Other parts are straightforward, such as um, pointing out the simple fact that there are bad people in this world. And bad people have a tendency to do bad things, and in some cases, horrendously wicked things. The temptation is often to point the finger straight at God, but that response is actually premature, because it fails to admit that it is humans, rather than God, who are directly responsible for so much of the evil in this world, and so obviously... But those layers are only the beginning. As you dig deeper, you start to hit upon some uncomfortable and offensive truths. For example, the Bible confronts us with the fact that there are far fewer good people than we tend to assume. In fact, it says there are none. That idea is very hard to stomach, especially in a culture where people hate being judged, and where some even think that the only moral absolute is that there are no moral absolutes. So not even God has the right to judge us. But the deeper we go, the bigger the shocks become, much, much bigger. Because when you dig down to the very heart of the Bible's answer to this question, you find an even more shocking truth. You discover that the problem of bad things happening to good people is found right at the very heart of the gospel. Yes, in the central event of Christianity, the problem takes on its most extreme and outrageous form. And what's more, we're told that this was God's chosen and predetermined plan. Yes, in the event at the heart of Christianity, the death of Jesus Christ, the worst possible thing happens to the very best of people, 
The worst possible thing happens to the very best of people. And it's said to be no accident, but rather the cornerstone of God's great salvation plan, right at the center of what the Bible calls the good news. And it was no mistake, certainly not according to Jesus. Now, all of the evidence tells us that Jesus believed it was both God's plan and an absolutely necessary one. So in our reading, if you look down, we see that that conviction first expressed in verse 4, and where we see Jesus' willingness to embrace what was about to happen to him. So in verse 3, a detachment of soldiers and officials turn up. They've been sent by the chief priests and Pharisees, and those are the people who everyone knows want Jesus dead. But then verse 4 says explicitly, Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. Knowing all that was about to happen, happen to him, what does he do? He goes out and makes it easy for them. It says he actively went out to meet them. He asked, he asked who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they say. That's me. He goes to his suffering willingly. He even takes the initiative. But a few verses later, we learn even more. We learn what it was that he was going willingly to. And there are a few verses in our three readings today that are going to reveal the deep truth about the cross. And the first one is there in verse 11. Do you see what Jesus said there? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And to get a sense of what he means here, um, this film clip from Interstellar may help. Very, very dramatic moment in that film, isn't it? But it's the kind of thing that Jesus had in mind. When the Lord Jesus said, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me, he was using a common biblical metaphor. He was using the metaphor, the cup of God's wrath. And when it comes uh, to the subject of wrath or anger, um, it's a much debated idea, but Jesus' teaching on it was actually very clear. And for one thing, Jesus took issue with with, um, with wrath. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he warned his disciples in very stark terms about the dangers and the consequences of anger. But according to him, the problem is always with human anger, not divine anger. You see, the problem with human anger is that it quickly becomes unrighteous anger. It becomes out of control, out of proportion to the offense. But God doesn't have self-control problems. God's anger is always righteous, just, measured, perfect. When God gets angry... It's always a right and proportionate response to something that is deeply wrong. So earlier on in John's Gospel, Jesus says without blinking, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Jesus' concern with human wrath was that people turn from it. His concern with God's wrath was that people be saved from it. You see, Jesus understood the human situation to be much like those people stranded on that planet, helpless as the great and terrifying wave of God's judgment approaches, but in this case with no escape craft. And to extend the analogy, we've caused the wave through what Jesus called sin, that hard-hearted, rebellious spirit that ignores or rejects God and which manifests in a million different ways, some of which we easily recognize as things that are wrong with the world, some that are maybe more subtle. But God will not ultimately tolerate that attitude in his world because it offends him and it ruins us and the world. And because of it, his judgment is coming. So Jesus' conviction was that sinners need saving. And he believed that he was the answer. Sinners need saving and he was going to do it. That was his understanding of his mission. 
of why he came into the world. He understood that by going to the cross, he could divert the coming judgment away from us and towards himself, drinking the cup of wrath on our behalf. He knew that was what his father, who he loved, had sent him into the world to do. So he agreed agreed with that unconscious prophecy of Caiaphas referred to in verse 14, who said earlier in the book, it is better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. That was Jesus' deep conviction and understanding of his mission. This was his understanding of God's great rescue plan. And he entered into his part willingly, even though it meant bad things happening to good people, the best of people. And it is, of course, the most amazing act of love and self-sacrifice in the history of the world. But to be really amazed by it, first of all, we need to believe that we need it. We need to believe that we need it. We need to believe that we are really sinners who need a saviour. Now, that is often hard for people exploring Christianity um, to get their heads around it. And if it's a new idea, we've got to keep thinking on it, keep looking at what the Bible says about it. Ask God, is it really true? God, give me understanding here. But it's becoming increasingly hard for Christians as well to get our heads around. So the church in recent generations, and particularly in our generation, has been tampering with the meaning of sin, blurring its boundaries and diluting its definition. But in doing so, we've been playing a very dangerous game. Because there's a second question that logically follows on from the question of sin. And that's the question of the necessity of the cross. Did Jesus really have to die? Did it have to be this way? Couldn't it have been another way? That's a question that liberal Christianity has always asked. And interestingly, they're on the same page of Islam on that issue. Islam also takes great offense at the idea of an atoning sacrifice. But here's the thing. It's increasingly being asked among Bible-believing churches too. Because we too are strongly tempted to dilute the meaning of sin, to come up with new, weaker, more palatable definitions of sin. But definitions a long way from the Bible's much bleaker and darker definitions and the definitions that made Jesus convinced that the cross was absolutely necessary. So here's the thing. The church desperately needs to recover its consciousness of sin. Otherwise, we too will eventually lose sight of why the Savior had to die and the wonder of the cross. So this is what our first time of response in this service is going to focus on, remembering our sin and the necessity of the cross. For Christians, uh, one of the things we may need to do is to confess our, our tendency to downplay the seriousness of sin. It hits us all. How easily we forget the depth of our sin. How often we forget that apart from the work of God's Spirit in our hearts, our hearts would be as hard as stone. We'd be as far from God as we could be, having no interest in Jesus, no place for him in our lives. And how easily we dilute the meaning of God's holiness and his call to holiness, ignoring or responding half-heartedly to the Bible's challenges. It is, of course, it's when we're living safe in our comfort zone that personal sin always seems less of an issue. How often I do all of these things myself. So as we engage today in this act of confession, let's dare to ask God, as Psalm 139 does, to show us our sin. God, show us our sin. The psalm says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because the more we see our sin, the more we'll see the necessity of the cross. And so the more we'll see the true glory and love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's have a time of compassion.